Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we have been uh, encouraged deeply as we have heard great truths sung beautifully and played beautifully. And we ask now that by your continued empowerment, Holy Spirit, you take the Scripture and make application unto us to sharpen us uh, and to make us more fit to serve you in this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, the, the uh, church of Thessalonica had been troubled by false teachers. They had come in among them, and they had spun a whispering campaign that with something like this, you know, the Apostle Paul really is not who he says he is. If he really loved you guys, he would be here among you. Uh, but he was, he's kind of a charlatan, and he has departed. And also they laid out some false doctrine. And so Paul heard these reports, and it broke his heart. He couldn't get to Thessalonica. So he sends Timothy as his chief aide to address the issues at the church. Timothy comes back to Paul and tells Paul, the church affirms your leadership, and Paul writes back this letter to straighten out some of the doctrinal issues that were at Thessalonica. But we read in chapter 2, verse 17 and following where the Apostle Paul says this, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I did. I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us. For what is our hope or our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? When he comes, is it not you? Indeed, you people at Thessalonica are our glory and our joy. So we sent Timothy to you, he says. Timothy has come back, verse 6, to us and has brought us good news about your faith and love. And he has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us. And, and then he goes on and he talks about one of the teachings that these false teachers had propagated was that if you have died trusted in Christ, but you're not alive when Christ comes again, then you have no hope for eternity. And so Paul, one of the main themes of this book is Paul says, no, if, if you die in the Lord, you will meet the Lord when he comes again. He says, we have an incredible hope. And he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And, and so he, he straightens out the doctrinal mess. He, he says, you have union with Christ in chapter one. He says, we know that he's chosen you before the creation of the world, chapter one. He says that he's going to save us from the coming wrath, the work of Christ is, and he glories in that. And then he comes to the end of his book, and he becomes intensely practical. And last week we saw, we talked about three elements of true worship. He said, if we're going to truly worship the Lord, in essence, we will be people who are joyful always, we will pray without ceasing, and will continually give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today as we continue with this practical application, he talks about how we can call forth the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, or how we can live in such a way as to not quench the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he writes this, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Test everything. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil. 
In this passage, he talks about how we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a pragmatic application of what he's dealt with so vigorously in the previous four and a half chapters. How do we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? In chapter 5 of Galatians, it says this, he says, verse 16, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Verse 18, you must be led by the Spirit. The acts of the sinful flesh are, and he lists them out. And he, then he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And, and then he says, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We must be led by the Spirit. We must live by the Spirit. We must keep in step by the Spirit. We must be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And so the question, as as you look at that text and this, is how do we call forth the power of the Holy Spirit? How do we live in such a way that we we quench not the Spirit of God? How, How do we live in such a way that we call down the power of God in our lives. J.I. Packer said this, this is in the bulletin. He said, more rational instruction thus proves ineffective. Only the illumination of the Holy Spirit opening our heart to God's Word and God's Word to our hearts can bring understanding of, conviction about, and consent to the things that God declares. Packer, who's the great, one of the great theologians of our time, says it's, it's not necessarily more and more knowledge. He says knowledge must be accompanied by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to receive with power what God has given us. So I, I believe this passage is incredibly important. And, and, and the issue is, how, how do we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? And he says, you despise not prophecies, but you test everything. You abstain from that which is evil, and you hold fast to that which is good. You see, the devil is constantly pouring water on the work of God in our lives. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says to Timothy, his young son in the faith, he says, Timothy, I plead with you to fan into a flame the gift you've received from the Holy Spirit. So while the devil casts water upon it, we're called upon, on our part, to fan into a flame the anointing power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we do that according to this text. But by not despising the apostolic testimony, but by testing everything, by, by clinging to the good, and by avoiding that which is evil. So number one, how do we invite the power of the Spirit in our lives? We do not look upon with contempt the apostolic testimony. Instead, we test everything by Scripture. He says this, do not put out the Spirit's fire by by not treating prophecies with contempt, but test everything. This is the prophecy of God. So, so if, if we're to receive the power of the Spirit in our lives, we shouldn't disdain Scripture or become haughty about it or think that cultural norms trump Scripture. And instead, Scripture should be that through which we determine every action. One of the cries of the Reformation was to the sources, to the sources, the Scripture. And later in the Reformation, there was this famous phrase that said, the church 
reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God. In other words, the church knows what it believes, but it's always reforming from decade to decade, generation to generation, according to the Word of God. If we are to call forth the power of the Spirit in our lives, we must be a church and men and women who say to the sources. The church reformed, we know what we believe, but we're always reforming according to the Word of God. Jeremiah had a tough job. The Old Testament. Jeremiah was a prophet for 40 years. No response. Zero. He called Judah back to repentance. Zero response. He goes into Babylonian captivity. Very little response. And in in chapter 5 of Jeremiah, he gives a statement about the people of God in his day. And listen to this. Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse... 30. A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies and the priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? In other words, the prophets just speak lies. They don't speak the truth. And the priests don't rule according to God's will. They rule by their own authority. And the people love it. And so later in chapter 20, Jeremiah says this. He says, you know, he says, people aren't listening. They're, they belittle me. They make fun of me. He says, even my best friends have abandoned me. He says this, but if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And then he says, two verses later, he says this, but the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. I, I was intrigued by this. Jeremiah says, you know, it's tough, but, but I cannot hold within me the word of God. I've got to speak it. I've got to proclaim it. I've got to stand in the gap. I've got to be God's man because it's a fire in my bones. That's what we need. And then two verses later it says, and if I live that way, the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. It was Jeremiah against everybody else. And he says this, because of God's word, and it's a fire in me, he is a mighty warrior for me. That's what we need. We need a compelling desire to honor God and to say, Holy Spirit, empower me so that I will not look down upon your truth, but I will live by it and I'll test everything by it. When I, when I read that and I thought about it in church history, a guy named Athanasius who, who, who spoke for the full divinity of Christ in, in the third century, fourth century, and, and the tide was against him. Everybody was saying, well, let's just say, a lot of people saying, let's just say Christ is of, of similar substance with the Father. He, he's special, but he's not all that special. And so he be, just became one of many deities instead of equal with God. And Athanasius says, no, the Word of God says that he is not of similar substance. He is of the same substance with the Father. And he stood against the current, and he won the day by the grace of God. And so today we proclaim correctly from scripture that jesus christ is fully god he is eternal god he is one with the father there is a trinitarian concept of god but athanasius had this statement he said i will stand even if it's me against the world athanasius 
contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. We need fire in our bones. We need fire in our bones that says, Lord, I want the power of your spirit. I want the power of your spirit. And when you come, Holy Spirit, as you empower me, I will stand and stand truly. Church, one of the things that I, uh, you know, I look at this text. It says, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't put out the Holy Spirit's fire, which, which means that we can put out the Holy Spirit's fire. And one of the things that I weep over is, is, is my sin and the sin of people who name the name of Christ. And sometimes I, I just I pray for people and who name the, claim, name the name of Christ, and I say, Lord, where's the change? Where's the change that you bring by your spirit? Where's, where's, where's a, a, a willingness to be conformed to your standards and, and to seek forgiveness and to make things work and to walk in humility and to walk in brokenness? Where, where, where is the change? Because the Bible says that, that when Jesus is preached, the veil is taken away. And it says this, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we are being changed. From glory to glory by his spirit. I say, Lord, where's the, where's the, where's the change? And, and, and then I, I think of this verse. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, you see. Transformed by, by mind renewal. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. And, and it, so I, I just back up and, and I say to myself, this is a sobering reality that through neglect or disobedience or sin, I can bring the work of God to a halt in my life. I want God to change me. I want to be transformed. I have one little life. I want to, do, I want to, go, I want to go for it. And that's why John Owen, the greatest Puritan, said this. Our primary aim in Bible study is not to learn the form of the doctrine of God in this primarily, but to get the power of it, of it implanted in our souls. The power of God. The power of God implanted in our souls. So let me give you a principle here. Listen. follower of Christ, if you stay in Scripture, if you stay in prayer, and if you stay in vital fellowship and friendship with people who love Christ, then you will flourish under the hand of the living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it will keep you from becoming cranky and weird. There, there you go. If you, stay in, if you stay in the Word of God, listen. And if you stay in prayer, and if you stay in vital fellowship with people who love Christ and can speak into your life, it will keep you from getting cranky and weird. A lot of people get weird. I'm serious. I see people sometimes just kind of start walking away from friendships in Christ and they kind of become above it and they're, they have kind of a great insight in the scripture that 
the commoners don't have, and they get weird. You see it in church history. They get weird. That's why these community groups that we set up, women's groups, man-to-man, just being in a small group where people can look at you and say, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Ask me to pray for this. How is that going? If you're married, how are you cherishing your wife? I mean, that is vitally important. John Calvin said this. The Lord is daily smoothing the church's wrinkles and wiping its spots. Hence it follows that it is holiness that His holiness is not yet perfect. It's not. Such then is the holiness of the church. It makes daily progress, but it is not yet perfect. It daily advances, but it has not yet reached the goal. He says God is daily smoothing out the wrinkles in, in, in our lives. There, there's a concept that people refer to called cognitive dissonance. And that means you can talk yourself into believing almost anything. It's amazing sometimes how there's an athlete, well, years ago, I've mentioned this before, but there's a guy named Deion Sanders who played for Florida State. And he was a showboat. He was a showboat. And he was, oh, he was just a showboat. I didn't like Deion Sanders. I thought he was an embarrassment. He later came to faith. He's he's a real deal. At that time, he wasn't a believer. And I just thought, Deion Sanders. And he played for the Falcons. I've never liked the Falcons. And then in June, between seasons, he signed with, at that time, what I thought to be God's team, the Dallas Cowboys. And all of a sudden, I thought, you know, Dion's not that bad. And I, changed, I changed in one film. It's called cognitive dissonance. In all seriousness, I've had people sit with me and say, I, I know that it's wrong to leave your wife. And I know that adultery is sin against God. And I know that, that you invite the wrath of God upon your life if you do that. But for me, this relationship is right. So you need people in your life who speak to you. I, I, I was thinking about this and I thought about David's almost finest moment. Almost. Please hear me. David, King David's almost finest moment. You know the story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David is at the, the apogee of his power. He is the man. He has power and authority and wealth, and it is all going his way. I mean, he is the man. And he goes out one night, and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath in the same subdivision he's in. He, he calls her into his house. They have an immoral relationship for a period of time, and he is, he is, he is happy as a clam, and, and she gets pregnant. David says, well, how am I going to cover this up, this mess? And so he calls her husband in from the field where he was on the front line battling with the Green Berets. His name was Uriah. And he says, Uriah, I'm glad you're here. I'm rewarding you for being a great warrior. Go home and be with your wife. And Uriah says, you know, great king, my wife is beautiful and I love her, but I cannot go in and enjoy her sexually because my men are bivouacked in the field facing death every day. And David says, oh, great. So the next night, he has a party honoring Uriah, and he gets Uriah drunk. And he says, Uriah, go be with your wife, but Uriah sleeps outside of his duplex. And David says, great. And so he sends Uriah back to the front lines with a sealed letter for the head of the army. And he tells the head of the army, put Uriah in the very front of a battle, make a fake battle, make sure Uriah is killed. And so Uriah and his crack troops charge 
a castle with no hope of winning. They're abandoned. They're all killed. And then David thinks, I've pulled a ruse. He takes this woman into his house, and he benevolently cares for her as a magnificent king who is looking out for the disenfranchised. David thinks, man, I've done it. I fooled everybody. And one day he's sitting on his throne thinking how smart I am, how crafty I am, how abandoned of God I am. And this prophet comes in named Nathan. Dreadlocks, long robe, smells of the desert. And he says, David, let me tell you a story. He says, speak, Nathan. He says, there's a man who's a wealthy landowner. He had more cattle and more sheep than you could count. And he had a neighbor, a tenant farmer, who had one little lamb. And the little lamb was treated like his pet animal. Ate at the table with them. This wealthy landlord had a banquet, wanted to kill a lamb. Instead of killing one of his untold lambs, he kills that one man's lamb. David was incensed with rage. He said, who is the man? He should forfeit his life, but he will pay back fourfold for what he has done. He was filled with rage. And Nathan says, you are the man. Stop. David was king. Nathan was a prophet. Dreadlocks, long robe, smelled of the desert. David could have sung, take him out, guys. You two guys, take him out. Chop his head off. He was the king. But David said, I've sinned against God. His almost finest hour. It shows a tender heart. So, and I read that and I ask, I ask you, I ask me, who has the freedom in your life to say you're the man? You're the man. We, we, we desperately need that. And I can't through neglect bring the work of God in my life to a halt. I need brothers in the Lord. I need a spouse who says the truth to me. I need it. That's one of God's major ways to keep us going strong in the Lord. Do not quench the Spirit of God by despising His Word. Instead, test everything. And be in community where it is tested. Now, on another level, that's on on an individual level, on a cultural level, on a cultural level, we, we test everything by Scripture. We test everything by what the Bible says. Because this is God's truth given unto man. Now, let me give you an example. We're in the middle of discussing something called same-sex unions. In 1996, President Clinton and the overwhelming majority of the House and the Senate passed the 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 Defense of Marriage Act, which said, in, which said that marriage should be determined to be between one man and one woman, of, not of the same sex, but different sexes, not group sex, but one man and one woman. Uh, some evangelicals and Roman Catholic thinkers and Orthodox people got together and saw the gathering storm, and in 2009... They said this. This is just part of a document called the Manhattan Declaration. I'm just going to read three paragraphs. Unfortunately, we have witnessed over the course of the past several decades a serious erosion of the marriage culture in our own country. Perhaps the most telling and alarming indicator is the out-of-wedlock birth rate. Less than 50 years ago, it was under 5%. Today, it is 40%. 
our society, and particularly its poorest and most vulnerable sectors, where the out-of-wedlock birth rate is much higher even than the national average, is paying a huge price in delinquency, drug abuse, crime, incarceration, hopelessness, and despair. Other indicators are widespread non-marital sexual cohabitation and a devastatingly high divorce rate. And what they were saying is that when you, when you mess with the foundation of what God says, you open a Pandora's box. The impulse, they said, go on, the impulse to redefine marriage in order to recognize same-sex and multiple partner relationships is a symptom rather than the cause of the erosion of the marriage culture. We, no less than they, all people, heterosexual, homosexual, are in constant need of God's patience, love, and forgiveness. We call on the entire Christian community to resist sexual immorality and at the same time to refrain from disdainful condemnation of those who yield to it. Our rejection of sin, though resolute, must never become the rejection of sinners. For every sinner, regardless of the sin, is loved by God who seeks not our destruction, but rather the conversion of our hearts. Jesus calls all of us who wander from the path of virtue to a more excellent way. But marriage is an objective reality, a covenant union between a husband and a wife that is the duty of the law to recognize and support for the sake of justice and the common good. And so they go on and on. So that was in 2009. So fast forward two years, 2011. The Attorney General says that he will no longer enforce the Defense of Marriage Act passed in 1996. And a leading commentator says the ground shook this week when Attorney General Holder announced the decision of the administration not to defend the Defense of Marriage Act in court. This was the law of the land passed by both houses of Congress and signed by President Clinton. But now they say they won't enforce it. Fast forward. Our president comes out and he says a few months ago that he's become convinced that marriage can be between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. So, see, all this has happened since 1996. It is not a slide. It is a gallop. But we test everything by Scripture and really by 2,000 years of, of church tradition and history. And, and I, I'm, I'm in... I'm, I'm, getting ready to do a conference in Europe. Sarah and I are in Spain. I go to this internet cafe in the mountains of Spain, in the middle of nowhere, and I check the web, and I, I see where there's an uproar while I'm gone with the president of Chick-fil-A who says they believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman, and where major leaders from two cities come out and say Chick-fil-A is not welcome in our city, and I think, what has happened while I've been gone? And I'm gone for two weeks, and the country falls apart. And then I read where there is a, there is a desire, there's a, a move to have a Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day on, on a Wednesday. And I went all over southern Spain saying, uh, por favor, donde Chick-fil-A? <laughs> Chick-fil-A, aquí, aquí. Couldn't find a Chick-fil-A. So to show our solidarity, we went, we went out and bought two chicken breasts and had chicken pasta that night. <laughs> and I thought, you know, we, we, we've got to be resolute and speak with grace and brokenness and love and, and diligence. But speak. Speak. We test everything through the grid of Scripture. And that's just one of, of multiple, multiple examples. Uh, just hear this. So as you test everything by Scripture, and as you, then, then the result will be this. You will adhere 
See, you will adhere to that which is beautiful and life-enhancing and glorious and good, and you will abstain. See, you will, abstain, you will seek to abstain from that which is evil. But, but, but we do that, church, in, in the context of the, the strong reality and the hope that is found only in Christ. And I, I, I go back to this, but I, for, for me to be the person God has called us to be, for us to be the church God has called us to be, we must be overwhelmed by the majesty and the grandeur and the goodness of Jesus. We must not just be noetic, epistemological people who hold to this and this and this. That's part of it. But in the midst of that, we, we must be overwhelmed by the glory and the goodness and the majesty of Christ. This article came out from Stanford University two weeks ago. It says, a breathtaking view could be just what the doctor ordered. A new study from Stanford University finds that an awe-inspiring experience or a moment that overwhelms to the point that time seems to stand still can improve our mental state and make us nicer people overall. This is what is this, quote, awe therapy, close quote. They said they showed films of children laughing and rainbows and the confetti parades, and they showed people grandeur mountains, waterfalls, beautiful beaches where there is stillness and says that was much more inspiring and therapeutic and soul enhancing than anything else they could do. And I thought, you know, that's what it means to gaze upon the person of Christ. That's, that is real off therapy. The eternal God became a man and lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross for our sins and he rose victorious over death and he is living in us by his Holy Spirit. And so we, we gaze upon him and we see the beauty and the excellency and the glory and the wonder of God in the face of Jesus. That's author. That's what I need. If I'm to stand strong and if I'm to be the man God's calling me to be, it's got to begin with this concept of, of the awe of God. Listen to this quote. I'm almost finished by John Owen. It's in the bulletin. He says this. Again, the Puritan, he says, when, when, when men live in a holy admiration of and true satisfaction found in God, as the God of truth, as the, God, as the first infinite essential truth, and in whose enjoyment alone there is fullness and all satisfactory light and knowledge, when they adore this fullness of these revelations of himself in Christ, then they go forward, basically. I've got to behold the beauty of God in the face of Christ. I've got to have the Word of God illuminated in my mind by the blessed Holy Spirit who takes Christ and elevates him in my understanding. That's what we need. So, so listen, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Instead, fan into flame the work of God in your lives. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day and... Thank you so much for the awe re reality of Christ. Lord, I, I pray for our, our generations to come. I, I pray for those of us who are um, in, in our adult years, as, as we continue down the path in this race of life, I pray we would finish strong. I pray that we would be people who walk in, in joyful obedience because we've been thunderstruck by the glory of Christ, by the power of the blessed Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come in power. Uh, work so in us that we don't despise prophecies, 
but we test everything by the word of truth. So work in us that we adhere or we cling to the good. We pant for the good and that we avoid every evil. Lord, work in us. Teach us. Let us let us stand and speak with brokenness and love and humility, but let us speak. Um, pr- pr- preserve not only a remnant, God, but bring revival. And, and may your, your cause prosper. May your church grow and flourish. May the overtures of the devil be silenced until you are our all in all, Lord Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.